Hello, friend, and welcome to the Rise Collective podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Jordan, and I'm honored to facilitate a place to gather and hear stories and teachings from our relations. Thank you for being here. If you find value in these episodes, you can become a patron and get exclusive bonus content at patreon.com slash risecollective. Before we begin, let's call in our benevolent guides. We humbly give thanks for your assistance and support today. May our listeners hear what they need to hear in service of their highest good. And so it is. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rise Collective Podcast. I'm Carrie Jordan, and this is episode 16. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Dr. Ann Filmeyer. We are connected through our community, and specifically, we're connected through our mutual friend, Stephen, from episode one. Both Anne and Stephen carry forward the lineage and the wisdom of the late grandmother, Kiwe Denokwe, Ojibwe elder in Michigan. I loved hearing Anne's story of how her journey and her relationship with Grandmother Key unfolded. I hope you enjoy it too. Before we dive in, I want to let you know that I have a Patreon page where you can contribute to the production of this show. And when you do that, you get tons of exclusive and bonus content from podcast guests and from myself. If you're already a patron, I am so thankful for your contribution to making this show happen. As a new mom, it's been challenging to continue keeping this show on the air, and I'm really grateful for your support. It helps me keep going. The Patreon giveaway for this episode is a plant ally guide where you'll learn how to create and maintain relationships with the plant nation. You can access the guide on Patreon, patreon.com slash rise collective at the $3 per month level. In this show, we talk about the strategic erasure of native peoples, the importance of reciprocity in our relationships with humans and with the natural world, how Anne met Grandmother Key and worked with her, and Vision Quest and the responsibility we have to our purpose. If you don't know Anne, I'm going to show share some more about her here. Anne Filmeyer, PhD, is the fourth president of Southwestern College, and she also serves as the director of the Ecotherapy Certificate there. Anne spent 20 years serving as the Ashkabiwis, or helper for the late Kiwe Dunokwe, and Anishinaabe Mashkikiwe, which is Ojibwe plant medicine woman. She served as Key's graduate teaching and research assistant at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and as her personal apprentice for two decades. You'll hear the story about this in the episode. Anne studied the Ojibwe language, the cultural traditions, stories, and ceremonies in the Medawiwin tradition of the Northern Great Lakes. She continues to live and teach from this tradition. Anne is committed to lifelong learning. Her education path connects her passion for creative expression with a concern for healing ourselves and the earth. You can read more about her own educational and career path in the show notes on the website. She is motivated by her 
understanding that we must transform our own lives in order to address our concern for others and for the world we inhabit. Once again, if you're interested in that plant ally guide, check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash rise collective. Let's dive in. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, in this, in the spiritual dimension, there's sort of those who are drawn to transcendence and um, kind of moving beyond what is apparent. And those who are drawn to imminence, which is sort of the manifestation of the divine or the sacred within what one encounters. And I think before I ever would have any concept of transcendent versus imminent as a child, I was just drawn to the joy of embodiment in nature. You know, I just loved being barefoot on the earth as a little girl. Mm -hmm. I loved climbing trees and just sitting in the top branches and, you know, feeling the wind on my skin and blowing my hair and the branches swaying and the gravity of the trunk down into the earth and my own body, the weight of it on the branch. And so I was enlivened i felt more alive and more awake and more aware when i was just fully in the joy of my of my body and nature and nature itself then became a place of of refuge when things were difficult in my uh family of origin and there was tension and difficulty in the family you know i retreated to to the flowers in the garden or to the peach tree in the backyard and was it budding and did, did were there fruits and were the fruits getting ripe? And so, you know, in my childhood, we lived in the suburbs. And so it wasn't like I was in the wilderness or that I was on a farm even. I was a kid in the suburbs of Philadelphia going out in the backyard and just finding, you know, any little evidence, um, especially of the wild, like a squirrel or something that wasn't domesticated that lived its own life in the, in the nature that was around us. So it was an inclination or an experience and it wasn't something I reflected on or thought about. Um, my family uh, attended different kinds of religious services. The one that was most meaningful to me was Quaker meeting. And mm-hmm. um, what I found meaningful in the Quaker meeting was that we could sit in silence and that we sat in a circle and that nobody was the boss and nobody was the intermediary between me and, and the divine or God or creator or or the greatness of all you know it was just for me to find it in myself in silence and that kind of quaker meeting there are different kinds of quaker meeting but that kind of meeting where it was recognized in the language of that faith tradition that everyone has the light within so everyone is that of god that spoke to me as a child and kind of served me until really until high school when my family by then had moved from Philadelphia to Wisconsin and they had moved from the suburbs to a farm awakenings. I I was, you know, I had idealized nature in a certain kind of way. So then to have nature be used for production as it is in the farm to be surrounded by, you know, pesticides being sprayed on fields to actually, you know, smell that in the air when that was when the plane sprayed it on the pea fields or the soybean fields or the corn fields. 
the ways in which animals in, in the, those kind of farms, especially dairy farms, how cows are treated, the disrespect I felt given to the, to the animals. I just found myself really at odds with, uh, you know, farm culture of that time. You know, there were no organic farms. There was no uh, kind of articulated consciousness around the relationship between people and farm animals. I was really uh, agitated about it and um, really unhappy uh, with that life and really questioned it and resisted it and, you know, began to ask bigger questions about how I was being raised and what the norms of my society were and, you know, why did we live like this and, you know, why were we destroying the earth in the name of food production and, you know, just a lot of kind of crises of consciousness. And I went to a boarding school called JFK Prep, and uh, this was an alternative high school that had the phrase, to lead the land we love. And I had a best friend there named Ingrid Washington-Watak. And Ingrid was a member of the Menominee Nation, which at the time had a reservation and still do in northern Wisconsin. We were together in this little alternative high school. It was a boarding school in Manitowoc County. And the um, state of Wisconsin, the state government had persuaded the Menominee people that if they gave up their reservation status and became a county, they would be so much better off. So the Menominee Nation gave up their reservation status and their entity as a federally recognized tribe to become a county. And as soon as they did that, the actual motivation of the state to do that became apparent because then the state declared eminent domain over a swath of land where they wanted to put a highway through the reservation. Really, it was unbelievable, Carrie. So evil. Oh my God, you know. And this is the, this is the mid-1970s. Cutting this, you know, this old growth forest, these 500-year-old trees that the Menominee people saw as part of their life. And so the Menominee people resisted. They armed themselves. And then the... the um, state called out the National Guard, and then there was a military line between the Menominee and the National Guard. So this happened in my high school, and I, and because I had a friend who this was her home, I was just shocked. I was like, what the hell is happening, you know? These people are willing to arm themselves to protect their forest. And the, the U.S., you know, sort of my side, the, the white Americans, we just want to go in there and destroy it, to put a road through. And because at this time my family was involved with the Quaker meeting, the Quakers, because they're pacifists, were allowed to cross that military. It was literally a militarized zone because they could bring um, medical supplies to the Menominee who were being hurt and who had no access because they kind of boxed them in. It ended up in a federal court in Madison, and the federal judge uh, said that they are a federally recognized tribe, that they have the right to their reservation status, which means the right to control what happens on their land and uh, reverse what had happened with the state becoming a county. So this, this whole thing happened. And, you know, for a kid who didn't really understand about the U.S. Native cultural relations, who had only ever learned about things, things and even the most mere historic sense. Right. You know, and those I, textbooks are often not accurate. Right. And almost always it's in the past tense. Mm -hmm. Like 
like that native people don't exist in the present. They used to believe and they used to fish and they used to do this and they used to do that. You know, this, this kind of erasure. And then Ingrid and I proposed at our high school to teach the first Native American literature class. And um, our faculty supported us to do that. So we, you know, became, you know, like we committed ourselves to doing this and we found some books that we all read and things like that. Um, but that, that was my, that was my awakening to Native communities today, their uh, relationship vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. government, state governments, the complexity of it, the fact that these nations, despite tremendous effort to completely obliterate them, have not only survived, but the resilience in those communities in which ways in which they are thriving and reclaiming language and tradition um, and the changes involved in all of this. I've been part of uh, an ally, an advocate, an observer, you know, since that period of my life in the mid-70s. So I was very open to learning, and I was very much seeking to learn. And it wasn't just about spirituality. It was also about what's the history? What happened? You know, the United States is considered a settler nation, and there's only four settler nations in the world. Everywhere else, the indigenous people were able to get the colonizer to give back control of the land. There's only four countries that this did not happen, and it's Canada, the U.S., New Zealand, and Australia. And in all cases, it was the British that never uh, returned power to the original inhabitants. And so we four settler nations have a particular legacy, and I think those of us who are descendants of colonists and immigrants have a really big responsibility to understand this history, to pay attention to, um, you know, I've been a college professor and teacher uh, since the 90s. And I have an assignment I give my students, I ask them like, how many of you know what happened in the place you call home, wherever that is, how authority, power, control changed from the original inhabitants, the indigenous community or communities, to the colonizers, to the immigrants? How did that power shift happen? What literally occurred in the place you call home? Because if something didn't happen, the indigenous inhabitants would still have control and authority over that land base. Very, very few students ever can answer this on the first day of class. Like, I'm, I'm like, tell me what happened. And when nobody can answer it, I say, that is because you've been colonized. Okay. You yourselves have been colonized. And if you're going to decolonize yourself, you got to start asking questions in which you've just been blinded to accept this erasure as normal. Wow, that sounds like a, such a valuable assignment to do as a college student. I've been noticing recently that there's seems to be kind of a movement to when we say where we're from to say what whose land we are on yeah exactly it's mm -hmm. and and that's exactly right you know carrie it's a movement of if we're going to move past our colonial legacy and if we're going to accept that the mindset if you will of the colonizer was dominion over the earth and um that the source of life got removed and became a resource so water, instead of being the source of life, you know, becomes a resource that we can use for our benefit in whatever way economically we think is the greatest benefit. 
So, you know, instead of letting the river run, we can dam it for hydroelectricity because there's more money to be made in hydroelectricity than there is to be made when the river just runs freely. You know, the logic of our economic system is a colonial logic. And it's being critiqued, you know, the whole thing at Standing Rock was about this um, capacity for people of all races and nations to stand in solidarity, you know, for the river, for the water, and water as life, water as source, water as sacred, and not just water as economic resource to be used or abused in whatever way is economically viable in the short run, because these things are not necessarily viable in the long run. So this short-term kind of thinking, we're at a time of great critique. And for me, you know, as I kind of continued on my path of awakening, one of the places I got really engaged in wondering was about plants as sacred beings. And in that part of Wisconsin, there's some protected land area called the Kettle Moraine. And the Kettle Moraine is land formed by glaciers. So there are these boulders and hills, and then there's these deep washouts uh, where the water collects, which is why that part of the world is the land of lakes, you know, northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, parts of Michigan, where this particular glacier activity altered the landscape in such a way. And there's parts of that near where I grew up in that part of my, life, my teenagehood that I would spend, I would retreat to, I would go to for the, for the wildness, the protected land, the not being farmed land. I began to really enter into kind of conscious relations with plants where I could sense their presence and exchange with them something maybe emotional, something where I felt in relationship with them. And that surprised me because I don't have anybody in my family or I didn't wasn't raised by anybody. Like, you know, I had a very modern, scientific, rational kind of family upbringing kind of education, kind of valuing it, that kind of education. So it wasn't like I talked about it to anybody because I wasn't sure if it was like a little bit too far out to be discussed. But it made me begin to do research into plants as medicine. And at first I looked into some of the old European traditions of plant medicine and herbology and herbalism and learning about old Europe and how in old Europe nature was sacred and water was source. And you can go into the Celtic traditions, the Nordic traditions. You can see that fountains and springs and waterways were considered to be deities. They were um, protected and guarded. Wells, natural wells, springs, especially through Ireland, where some of my ancestry is from. So I initially began this quest and connecting to old Europe and what pre-Christian Europe held as sacred and pre-modern, what were the relations between people and nature in kind of the pre-modern era? I started longing for someone who could connect me to that because I was reading about things, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old and, you know, the witch burnings in Europe and, and the ways in which uh, herbalists and midwives were targeted by that movement. And, you know, I began to research what happened. Why were people accused of witchcraft? Why were they killed? And mm -hmm and like what the hell happened in Europe you know something went down there that was uh, extremely anti the sacred feminine extremely anti nature and it was kind of necessary to preset the stage for modernity and for the movement of nature from living to mechanistic 
that everything was mechanical and therefore you could you could take any part of the machine you wanted and move it to another part of the machine and it didn't have life it it wasn't any longer regarded as sacred and how the witch trials and the witch burnings and that fear that that epidemic of fear created a change in the culture and it made me really sad you know I, I was like god no one is alive that can connect me to that there's there's no living tradition it was absolutely obliterated this was my thinking and my um feeling about it like i went to europe i went to france i went to scotland i went to england i went searching it happened so so long ago that it, it's so it's like lost in all of those generations that were conditioned and colonized exactly oh yeah and i could you can find you know the standing stones you know you can find evidence you can find archaeological evidence of the ways in which the wells were sacred and and the land and the and people aligned themselves with the natural cycles of equinox and solstice and moonrise and sunrise and the, the lunar cycle was actually the basis of the of the old calendars you know we have the roman calendar the julius caesar calendar but it's a it's a calendar of of empire it's not a nature-based calendar. So I, I learned about these older calendars, which were almost all lunar lunar cycles, and I studied the lunar cycle. But, but I'm doing all of this from obscure texts and archaeological remains and my personal quests. And I began to really hunger for some way to connect to this kind of knowing and way of being in relationship with the rest of life. And being in that process... I uh, graduated college, moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and began volunteering in an herb store to learn about the plants and to help uh, this woman who ran this little herb store called Archangel Herbs on Brady Street. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she was bringing this elder, this, this Anishinaabe, Mashkikikwe, uh, Ojibwe herbal medicine woman, to Milwaukee for a weekend workshop. And, you know, I'll kind of never forget because I remember it cost $50 and I had no financial resources. I was waiting tables and volunteering at the herb store. And I'm like, I don't have $50, but how can I do this? You know, Mary, can I do anything? And she said, well, look, in. I'm hosting the event, so I'm going to be responsible for all the people coming. But if you could just sit right next to this elder I'm bringing and just whatever she needs, if she needs a glass of water, if she needs a break, like, could you just sit next to her and take care of her needs? And I will tell her that's your, you know, your role. I said, of course, you know, of course I'll do that. So I, um, I went and I sat on the floor next to her and Kiwe Danokwe would say something to the group. I'll remember one thing she said. We were in this little town outside of Milwaukee called Wawatosa. And she sat down and she goes, oh, Wawatasi, how sweet. This little village is named after the firefly. And I remember uh, the people gathered were like, what did you say? What did you say? And, you know, in white culture, we're not really trained in kind of appropriate relation to elders and that you don't pester them with questions and, you know, you don't, you're not entitled, you're patient, you listen. So she found it sort of annoying the way that they <laughs> kind of demanded that she answer them. Um, so I'll never, she turned to me and she's like, um, can you answer them? And because I had listened carefully, I could say, um, she said, Wawatasi, that's the name for Firefly. And she believes this town, Wawatosa, is named for Wawatasi. And 
So the whole weekend, everything she would say, if they asked her to repeat it, she'd turn to me and she'd be like, what did I just say? And I could, I had the oral skill to retain the information and repeat it. She was testing me, which I didn't know, uh, but I passed the test apparently. (laughs) So, you know, at the end of the weekend, she said, I'd like to invite you to come visit me on my island. Oh my God, like what could be more profound than that invitation? Yeah. I was like, of course I'll come to your island. Where is your island? What is the name of your island? You know, uh-huh. I got myself to your, I'll get myself to an island. Like it can happen, you know? Uh-huh. And so it was, that was our initial meeting and um, her invitation for me to come. That began this journey in a particular lineage that is nature-based that has an ecocentric worldview and lineage. And my ability to come uh, forward was that I just committed, like, I'm going to show up, you know, I'm going to learn what I can. And I didn't know or couldn't have understood that this, um, the year that we met, 1979, was only one year after the Native American or what is called in the federal government, the American Indian Freedom of Religious Act, which was passed by the U.S. Congress in 1978. And until 1978, Medeo-in, which is Kiwetanoque's spiritual lineage, as well as Sundance, as well as many, many other Native religious traditions, were against the law in the United States until 1978. It's so hard to believe that that was so recent. Yeah. And that here were these colonists who came with, you know, William Penn. I mean, in the Quaker tradition, it's a big deal. You know, William Penn got kicked out of England and he and his followers came and laid claimed part of, you know, Pennsylvania means Penn's woods. They claimed this territory for themselves to practice this faith, Quakerism or the Society of Friends, because it was not legal in England for them to practice it. So they were religious outlaws who came to lay claim to land and practice their faith tradition and then participated in outlawing the indigenous faith traditions. You know, just the the tension uh, within all of us when we really learn this history and we go, oh my God, the irony of that. Yeah, so painfully ironic. It is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She began, once her belief system was legal, she began to look for students. So this is the part which I did not understand until much, much later. When we met in 1979, she was on a quest for people who were going to commit to a, learning a spiritual tradition and a lineage. And I was seeking a, a human connection to an old way. And having gone to Europe first to find it and not finding it, returning to the U.S. kind of in despair, like that doesn't exist, It never occurred to me that there was a way as a non-Native person for me to be involved in a Native spiritual path. Like that just didn't seem appropriate or possible or anything, you know, just it didn't ever occur to me. So when I met her and she extended this invitation, I didn't really understand what it meant because I still had the perspective that a Native spiritual path was only for Native people and wouldn't. a a person not born into a tribal community or belonging in that way really had no right and and no access. Mm -hmm. And I, and I accepted that, you know, I didn't 
question that really. I thought that's just how that is. So when I learned from her that she did not carry that worldview, that she felt anyone who will commit to this path, who will learn it, who will make the necessary sacrifices, who will undergo the necessary ceremonies, who will who will take it on and, and accept the taboos that are part of it and that will live accordingly. Anyone who will do that, then I would like them to come and learn. So she didn't feel it had to be only for those who were in a particular identity group. Mm-hmm. And she received criticism for that. You know, there were Native people that criticized her for that. There were white people that criticized her for that. There were Native people that criticized me, and there were white people that have criticized me and other, you know, groups who think, you know, it's misappropriation or, or, and there is misappropriation. There are people who take like a sweat lodge ceremony out of its context and with no training, uh, maybe they read about it in a book or looked at a diagram, they make a sweat lodge and they put people in it as if they know what they're doing, which is extremely dangerous. And to take these things out of context is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, those things have happened. And there have been people who have also decided that they know what a vision quest is. And so they're going to charge, you know, X thousands of dollars, and they're going to run a vision quest. And they haven't been appropriately trained. And if they had been, they would know that you can't put a price on it. You're giving something, you can receive something in return. But it's not like a commodity that you sell for a price. Native people are deeply, you know, deeply object to the commodification of their culture and the ways in which things are commodified and misappropriate. So mm-hmm. I understand all of that. And I, you know, uh, participate in those critiques, you know, when, when those things happen, which they do. I think this point about commodification is, it can be confusing and hard for some people to grasp because we are so conditioned and colonized in we're just so part of this capitalist mindset capitalist culture that we've been born into for many of us and so it can be hard to understand and also hard i mean tosakana says that you know being a medicine person is is a hard way to make a living and that's so true because we're not in our culture. Um, if it, it's just not normal to kind of openly expect reciprocity, like people love free stuff. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I just think that's it's an interesting dichotomy because it's what you just said about the vision quest and any type of medicine tradition, not asking money for it. It can be tough on people because other people don't have that context of reciprocity and don't have that context of giving something. It's more like, oh, this is a free thing. I'm just going to take the free thing because nothing in our society is ever free. Right. So yeah, I just wanted to point that out. I think that's totally right because in the old culture, if the medicine person, you know, gave you a ceremony or did a sweat lodge for you or your family or, you, you know, your young person um, provided the vision quest ceremony for them, you know, the family would know we, we owe in exchange and there's reciprocity. Without reciprocity, there's no balance. So what's the value to us of this healing ceremony or what's the value to us? Um, of this teaching or what's the value to us of this story 
like we give in return. So, um, you know, in old times, it might have been uh, hunting. Well, we'll provide elk for your family, you know, for the medicine person, for their family. We'll hunt more than our family needs and provide meat and fur um, and other materials for your family, you know, in equal measure. Like if, if you just save my life, what do I owe you? I probably have to give you something every year just to keep the balance because every year I'm alive, I'm alive because you helped me to be alive. You know, so there was an understanding in the old culture, even in um, the translation of that, you know, in Grandmother Key's life, like if she did a healing ceremony for someone and they noticed that she needed new tires on her truck, they might buy her new tires. Like you give in equal measure. It doesn't have to be a cash exchange, but what is the value of this to your life? You give in equal measure to that, to the person who provided that for you. So that teaching of reciprocity is, like you said, not really part of the commodification culture that we live in, where, you know, it's kind of like, what can I get away with? You know, what can I buy on sale? Like, and then we pay the hourly fees that, you know, lawyers get paid more than daycare providers. Why is that? I think it also extends into our relationship with nature, like you were talking about before with the farms and just in general, our relationship with plants and animals, the ways that we show reverence to the animals that we eat or the the ways that we have an exchange with the plants who are assisting us and asking if it's okay to harvest this commodification that we have with each other in our human culture just extends outward into our relationship with the earth and her beings. Exactly. In taking on this lineage, then the part of that is, you know, the taboo. I can't go and pull a plant out of the earth if I don't give something, if I don't explain to the plant what I need it for, and if I don't get permission, which means I have to ask and I have to listen and I have to receive an answer before I can harvest. It's not enough to even just give an offering. I have to actually have permission. So how do I become capable of receiving a yay or a nay? You know, yes, you can harvest my family. Um, and also, it sounds like you perceived this as a child that there that this was possible and necessary. Yeah, at a very at more of a gut level of sort of instinct, instinctual mm-hmm. knowing, but mm-hmm. not, not in a conscious way. And so the work in the lineage created the conscious container, you know, the, the articulation of why we live in this relation. Because the basis of this particular worldview, Medeoin, but many other spiritual traditions, is balance. That if we, if we take without permission, we've destroyed the balance. If we, that we, that we have each of us in our own lives, choices, that we do have choice. And we can choose in in this tradition, there's the prophecy of the seventh fire. And that prophecy tells us that we are living today at the time of the seventh fire. And we are at the crossroads where we, each one of us, each individual one of us has to choose. And we have to choose it not once, but every day in every action, whether we're going to place our feet on the path of destruction for the path of creation? Are we going to give ourselves to creativity and, and the fostering the flourishing of life? 
or are we going to give ourselves to the destruction and dismemberment of our ecosystems of each other? You know, are we going to choose a violent reaction or are we going to be peacemakers? You know, at, at every level, like even in our interpersonal relations, even in our work relationships, how am I going to handle this conflict? How am I going to handle this communication? How can I do it so that I'm putting my feet on the path of creation over and over again to lend my energy to this crossroads we as humanity are facing? And we see it. It's getting played out in big drama for us at the, at the political level, you know, at the cultural level. Are we going to choose good relations, right relations? Are we going to choose destructive power over, domination, control, um, genocide, elimination, hatred, fear? Are we going to choose love, community, commitment, connection? Like not just once, but every day. So the, the spiritual path is, you know, is, is preparation to, to do that, to choose the path of creation, to choose peacemaking, to choose balance, to choose right relations, and to understand that right relations means there always has to be consent. There has to be permission. You can't take a life, a plant life, or you can't go out and hunt without asking that animal's permission. May I take your life? I'm going to feed my family and use your fur for ceremony or whatever to be explicit in, in these in our relations. May, may I, not I will, and how we can enter and engage in, in different kinds of relations with each other. You know, when I first started, I didn't, you know, know these things, but one of the first requirements uh, was for me to do the vision quest, which is your time away from everybody, your time with nature, your time with spirit, that you step away from your habitual life, not just that you fast from food, but that you fast from habits of mind, you fast from human company, you fast from clothing, and you don't bring a mirror, you don't bring any jewelry, you, you know, you leave all this behind, you go as plainly as possible, you just, what you're wearing, you know, your sleeping bag, you know, just very simply, so that you can step out of your normal life, to be available to spirit, and to say, you know, basically, like, how shall I serve? You know, what is my purpose? What is my uniqueness? How am I connected to the whole scheme of the cosmos? What is my unique relationship with all that exists, seen and unseen? And to know that there was a culture where every young person at puberty would do this. So everyone, every adult knew that they had a purpose, that their life had meaning, that they had a specific and personal relationship with the imminent sacred, with the divine being, and that that was then their responsibility. They might go to a medicine person for assistance to understand a dream or because they were sick and needed some balance in their life and needed help. But ultimately, the idea is not that the medicine person is the intermediary between you and, and creation. You yourself have to take care of that relationship. You yourself are responsible for your relations with your ancestors and with your descendants. You yourself carry the sacred within yourself. You are part of the all is. 
you belong, you have meaning, and you express your meaning through your words and actions. In that worldview and that kind of communal context, you know, you can understand why there was such less anxiety, stress, depression, you know, all of these mental health maladies and emotional maladies that we struggle with in our contemporary society, so much was addressed by the context of respect that each human being's life had a sacred purpose, had a sacred meaning, had a uniqueness, and that you and me wouldn't have the same meaning. We wouldn't have the same spiritual name. We wouldn't have the same purpose. So we would also respect our differences, that you would look at something like this, and I might look at it like that and that both our perspectives were sacred, that one of us wasn't right and one of us was wrong, that we were both, if we were in touch with this capacity to be connected to our highest selves, our spiritual beings, we were both right. So how could two rights sort of create a new understanding? You know, So we have the imagery even of the old councils of Native people sitting in a circle to deliberate and decide and determine an action that they needed to take collectively. That it wasn't like a king on high saying, hey, everybody, it's time to go to war, like pick up your weapons and follow me. Grandmother Key used to say that they had a saying, who chiefs best chiefs. And that meant if someone said, hey, let's all pick up our weapons and go to war against, you know, this other uh, community because of some skirmish we're having with them, and nobody wanted to go to war, they just didn't listen to that person and they just turned their attention to the person who said, hey, you know, let's have a little convoy of folks and go over and sit down and talk with them and see how we might resolve this, you know, difference or this tension or this. And people might say, oh yeah, like that's how we want to deal with it. So there was no standing chief who always had the word and who, who everyone had to follow. It was like, who had the best idea at the moment that the group wanted to, you know, was persuaded that, yeah, let's do that. I just loved kind of understanding the whole way of being and how can we reproduce this, you know, in our workplaces. So I'm a college president and I'm like, how can I reproduce the council? So I don't make decisions without input from all the stakeholders that we sit in circle we talk something out. We look at all these different ways of possibly understanding it. We try to come to an understanding agreement about what course of action we're going to take. It might be slower, but at the end of it, everyone feels included. They feel that they were heard. They might not prevail, but they had a voice. I'm interested in, you know, that my life is about knitting together, you know, bridging, if you will. I live in the contemporary world in a contemporary organization doing contemporary work, but how can I bring the wisdom of these old ways forward and uh, instill them and create new ways to make decisions, to make organizations thrive, to, to be of service? I think we really need that because these old ways are so potent and so meaningful, foundational, and yet they were a long time ago, the norm. And the world, as we've been talking about, has changed so much. We have, we just have different context that we're living in. And so I think it's so important to be creative with how we can apply the wisdom in our contemporary wor world. Right. And just, and we you know we're going to fail, like, you know, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to move too fast or we're going to, you know, go back to an old uh, way of doing something because it's, it's quicker or it expedites 
or we're just going to have, you know, fall back on habitual patterns. And it's just an ongoing process. You know, it's, it's okay to uh, mess up and, and, you know, to have a rupture and seek repair. Yeah, it's definitely going to happen. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been really eye opening and I really appreciate you taking the time Yes. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you for sharing this time and conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us this episode. If you got value out of it, please take a screenshot and share it on Instagram. Remember to tag me, Carrie. I hope this interview inspires you. I'll put any relevant links in the show notes on therisecollective.org. You can find past episodes, my weekly blog, and products for sale at therisecollective.org. While you're there, download the guide to feminine goal setting. Learn how to work in harmony with folk magic and the rhythms of the earth. Hundreds of women have used this method to weave magic into their lives. It's a simple guide and it'll help you move forward towards your soul's purpose. If you love the show, please consider supporting its production at patreon.com slash rise collective. I can't do this alone. There are lots of costs associated with the podcast. And if you believe that the voices of our elders need a platform to reach more people, please become a patron. It's really worth your while and you'll get gifts from podcast guests and from myself. I also provide guided meditations, bonus interviews, resource guides, and much more. You can get all of this at a $3 a month level. Thank you and please subscribe in whatever app you listen to podcasts. I so appreciate you leaving a review so the show can reach more people. Thank you for listening and I'm looking forward to next time.